0: lightspeed hello and welcome to the lightspeed magazine story podcast i am jim Freund, your host in this episode we present a saint between the teeth by sloan leong performed by stephen rutnicki and directed by chelsea Dupuy. but first a word from our sponsors Ancestor by number one New York Times best-selling novelist Scott Sigler is available for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And now, it's time to buckle up. We're going to Lightspeed.
1: A Saint Between the Teeth by Sloane Leon Karatet moistens his sightless eyes with his tongue as he draws his finger across the limestone tablet glyphs. His audience today is a clutch of toddling nymphs, motionless save for their short tails rippling the shallow water impatiently. It's a good age to read to, while the little omens are still young enough that the novelty of the world keeps them fearfully reserved and quiet. They likely won't understand much of today's reading, but it doesn't matter. Tradition dictates that they be read to as soon as they've hatched, and hatched they are. His sensitive finger-pads drift glacier-slow across the tablet's surface, reading the minuscule cuneiform Stark against his seti. The intricate carvings are as clear to the touch as a canyon is to a raptor's eye on an unclouded day. Today he has chosen the poet La Raja to study, not because of her poetry, which explores typical Oman subjects like the joys of solitude, slowness, the eating of telf, but because of her penmanship. He'd always admired the uniquely subtle expression of her mark making and enjoyed following the path of a single glyph, tracking the delicate curve of the author's talon as it etched into the substrata. For now, your body is content enough to graze on what our caves offer, but as we grow, we must move on to more substantial sustenance. The first egg saw to this, giving us our alliance with the Telf. This poem is inspired by the poet's first true nourishment. Let me emanate like light, a tremor of warmth on the skin, pulsing dawn filling my body like bones, just as solid sweetness waiting to burst. Pain snaps Karatet's mouth shut around the poem, buckling him over from a sudden knot of agony. The stone tablet clatters to the cavern's unforgiving floor as his stomach twists into a hard crease of scalding steam. Panting, he curls into himself, tail wrapped tight around his waist as if he can cut the radiating cramp off with his own throttling strength. Beneath the roar of the stream he hears his fellow scholars lift their heads, their breaths startled into speeding. "'Are you all right, brother scholar?' one of the other scholars asks from a neighboring study cell. "'The nymphs before Karatet are quiet, but have balled up in distress, "'mostly submerged in the shallow stream. "'When Karatet doesn't respond quick enough, the scholar adds, Someone gather the nymphs and take them to the dining chambers, please. They don't need to witness this. Caradet waves off an approaching omen in frustration, then remembers his manners and contracts his feathered gills. Apologies. It's nothing, Elder, really. Leave them to me. Nothing, indeed, the Elder Scholar bites out, growing muffled as he returns to his tablet. You need to begin your pilgrimage. No more excuses, Karatet. Karatet can feel someone moving closer, rousing the nymphs to exit the study chamber. He grunts and grasps for a list in his head, things that hold other things, and wills the burning ache to subside with the recitation Bones to marrow, blood to heat, mouths to teeth, skins to meat. The pressure builds under Karatet's translucent skin, a false, nauseating heat. Then his stomach unclenches so quickly it leaves him lightheaded and gasping. With limp and shaking hands, he sets aside the tablet back into its stone shelf and slithers weakly out of the reading alcove back into the frozen stream like a tadpole. He parts his wide mouth and seals his nostrils as he sinks into the water, letting the stream slide past his teeth and over his gills. A drowsy chill swarms up over him like an embrace, and he breathes out the remnants of tension in his gut, in his bones. A hand breaks through the cold, strokes down the length of his smooth back with the tips of filed claws. I think it's time, younger brother, a strong voice says over the river din, hiding within its amusement. The poetry will have to wait. His elder sister, Murataj. Her touch stills across his shoulder, caught on the bony prominences no healthy Ulman should have. You're almost ten winters old. You need to eat. You've lasted longer than I on salt mites and moonlouse. if that makes you feel better. Water sluices off Karatet as he hauls himself up into a sitting position and anchors himself on a nearby rock. The current is strong enough to tug at his malnourished body, pluck at the vestiges of his strength, no, I'm fine. I. I can go until next winter, Karatet says. He drags his claws through the water, as if Isanga hadn't just toppled him over completely. In a whisper he adds, I'm not ready. Murataj hisses out a sigh and slides her arm beneath his, lifting him from the water. They've had this conversation before and she has relented twice already. Karatet consents there will be no refusing her demand this time. You're not supposed to be ready, she says, leading them down a cave toward the dwelling quarters. If you were, I would think you a monster. Panic starts to prickle at Karatet's spine, but he's too feeble to react to it. (sighs) Just leave me in the stream. I'd rather feed on cave mold than eat one of the telf. I just—I can't. I don't understand how you can do it. How any of our family can. Murataj stiffens beside him, her meager pace halting. He has insulted her. It is not his first time. They have had this particular debate many times, by themselves and in the company of others. He could not sway her any more than she could him. His gills press against his neck as a backwash of doubt flows up over his conviction. How could something he found so unnatural and cruel be so inconsequential to everyone else? Could it simply be a flaw of his? He liked to think his creed had been founded around an innate sense of virtue and respect for life. but. If he peered at the origins of his beliefs, he could see another side to the truth he'd cultivated. As a child, his brood mother had fed him a cave beetle, and to this day he could still hear a chirrup of pain as he bit down into it. And even as his brood mother cradled him through tears, assured him its death was of no import. Karatet could not shake off the slough of realization. His existence required a brutality he could not stomach. Don't be a fool. This is what we have, what's been agreed to by both our people. We're past being martyrs for our nature, Murataj murmurs. Beneath their feet... The spring melt moves sluggish and steady through the lightless cave, filling the wide cavern with the cold bite of winter's last breath. I won't force you to eat, but before you curl up into a corpse, you need to go and meet the Telf for yourself. If you'd still rather starve after that, then, yes, I understand, Karatet says feeling both relief and a great growing hollowness. The water rasps against the stone, sings itself back and forth through the tunnels, the depth of it swelling ever so slightly with accruing sediment. Tomorrow, then, he says, trying to scrape together some amount of conviction in his voice. I'll meet with them tomorrow. The next wake cycle, Karatet rouses to Moratage shuffling around her room. Invigorating warmth has suffused him, a stark contrast to the icy stream in the archivist quarters. Normally, Karatet would enjoy the thermal spring heat that warmed the surrounding rock in his sister's home, but all it has done is stir up his body's hunger, sharpened the sting of starvation. Did you even sleep, he asks, padding over to a nearby pool and submerging himself. The water soaks into his flesh and gills, giving him a brief rush of renewal before his gut begins to pinch. A little. Hmm. What else do you need, Murataj says absently before disappearing into her sleeping chamber. Her home is naturally decorated with clusters of mineral straws and boxwork that swallows the ceilings and walls. He finds it disturbs and muffles the flow of sound and air, leaving him disconcerted. His own dwelling has been sanded down of harsh textures and angles, all smooth stone furnishings rounded for him to recline on or against. Here— You'll need these, Murataj says. She shakes out something large, and Karatet grabs the edges of the object gingerly, feeling the density and texture of what he realizes is woven leaves. It smells rich and musky with age, like reeds from the forest overhead drift down the cave rivers, clotting and decomposing. What is this? A cloak. You'll need it to withstand the light and weather up above. The cloak's fabric will keep moist for a decent amount of time so your skin doesn't crack from the dryness. Moritage draws it tighter around her brother, knots it beneath his throat. It feels heavier than it did in his hands as it envelops him, muffling his bare skin of vibrations. Clothing was not a part of Ullman culture unlike the Telf's penchant for garments, and wearing the cloak fills Caratet with a prickling anxiety. What if they thought he was trying to ingratiate himself with them? What if his clothing was distasteful in some way? And this? She slides something heavy and hard-edged into his palm, a crystal the size of an egg, constructed of harsh, uneven little cubes. "'Payment for transport. "'That's all you need. "'Ready?' Caratet wrinkles his muzzle in affirmation. "'He follows his older sister out one of the entryways, "'a hole bored open to barely the circumference of their skulls. "'When the waters rise, which is rare, "'blocking the small entry hole will take only a moment. "'They slither easily through, "'limbs compressing to their sides, ribs folding up to fit the necessary width. They pass through community living quarters, twitching their gills so that they pop in brief greetings to passers-by. The walls here are honeycombed with holes, entryways to small dwellings that echo in his peripheral hearing with movement, to shops and halls that make up the mundane routines of oman life. Murataj leads him to a rear passage beset by large stalagmites, familiar formations he has touched his entire life. Now they feel like jaws waiting for a meal. Is this all of what the Telf will see of him? Fangs, a throat, his shameless appetite. When you get to the top, there will be a small hut, she says. When he chatters his teeth soundlessly in confusion, she clarifies, a dwelling made of wood. Yes, wood. An envoy will be waiting for you there and will take you to the Telf's village. He knew in theory how this all went, but suddenly having to breach the surface himself to trust in millennia of tradition and tales of the first egg's will sent a needling panic through him. You'll be fine, Murataj says, squeezing his tail with her own. This path is old and well tread. Go, brother. Nourish yourself. Arteries of water flow down the cave walls, gravid with the scent of all the surface holds, and growing richer as Karatet moves towards the exit. The higher he walks, the lighter the air becomes. Thinner and drier in a way that leaves him feeling bare, even draped in the reedy cloak. New sound now. The reverberation against stone giving way as it funnels out into nothing. Around a corner, molten heat spills against his skin, burning him. He'd read of daylight before, but the actual experience of it thrashes away the tepid poetry that had tried to grasp it. It is a small bubble of blazing at the end of the tunnel, beckoning him forward with its insistent warmth. It takes him several long moments of moving forward, turning and hiding his face, and moving forward again before he feels it. The overhead... THE OUTSIDE When he walks through into the heat of day, true day, the new burning atmosphere and the filthy turbulent wind shoving at his cloak ravages his senses. His body buckles into a spiral to protect itself. Morning, Karatet pulls his cloak around him tightly, shuddering under the thin boundary of cloth half-submerging himself in the shallow river feeding into the cave. The worst of it all is how this surface world sounds. Branches, bow and crunch, bushes crackle, leaf chafes against leaf. How the cacophony of noise glances violently off the furious world around him and fades too quickly "'absorbed by the giant nothingness above him. "'It's all too much. "'Too much noise betraying too much life, "'too much texture. "'Time dilates with his fright. "'How did any of his brethren tolerate this place?' "'A crunching close by, a predator's approach. "'Karata tries to direct his hearing toward it, "'to feel its nearness through his skin.' but it is too late. Something opaque and heavy is draped over him, and he jolts, thinking at an attack for several frozen seconds, until no bite follows. Rising, he touches what he finally understands to be a second fabric over him. "'Are you all right?' a voice asks, its accent filled with plosive air and clicking. Charatet, relieved at being able to recognize the stranger's language, shivers his gills in confirmation. Something roots around in his cloak's pocket and withdraws the smooth ritual stone. Ah, what a lovely color! This will be fine for the fair. Up you go, then. A color! Another facet of the world his nature did not give credence to four branch-like limbs, stiff with armor, suddenly compress around his back and haul him upward, scooping his legs from the ground. What was happening? Was this the envoy he was meant to meet? I, I'm not sure, Karate tries to speak, but this rough handling is his mind's limit. Don't worry, Ulmum, the stranger says. I'll turn the half-day walk into a quarter for you. Karatet's malnourished body sends out sprigs of panic that in their effort to energize him only founders his consciousness, relegating him to a sick and sudden darkness. Wet warmth cocoons Karatet as he wakes from cold, dark sleep. He shifts and splashes, feeling the walls of the narrow hot pool he's been immersed in. His underfed memories struggle forth, brief currents of time when he'd been jarred awake, the bumpy basket ride from the cave mouth down into the forested valley, the wretched cries of flying things, the being, a telf, he knows now, hauling him out of the basket, carrying him like an immobile nymph. And now, here he was, in one of their welcoming pools, cordoned off by what feels like drapery, leaving him in blessed quietude. Tonguing the water, he finds it flat, lifeless, missing the natural sharpness of dissolved metallics and sediment. Boiled, then, he hisses in distaste. Oh, you're awake then, visitor? "'Something slips between the curtains, "'touching something to the back of his hand. "'Please drink. "'I've never seen an Ullman in such a sickly state. "'I didn't realize anyone was here. "'My apologies. "'I—' "'Drink now, dear one. "'We can speak after I'm sure you won't faint again. "'How embarrassing. "'Splashing around while his host was watching, "'not introducing himself.' Karatet takes what he feels now is a goblet in embarrassment, not wanting to offend them further, and gulps the contents down. The sensation of it sliding down his throat, the instant relief expanding in his belly, makes him whimper. A deep savouriness shimmers across his tongue, like the nuttier aspects of cave snail shell, but then surrenders to a lighter sweetness like sugared worm milk. It heats him from the inside out, pooling in his stomach and expanding outwards like liquid light. Oh, is all he can manage. A syllable teetering on the edge of a relieved croon. That good, ah? The telf says from behind the curtain, amused. Or perhaps you're just too starved to tell the difference in quality. Karatet slugs the rest of the liquid back and nearly passes out from a vibrating rush of energy. The Telf scoops up the goblet before it falls from his hand and Karatet tries to catch at their arm. You, you must tell me what that is. I've never tasted such a thing. Never? The Telf doesn't pull their arm away an armoured arm, he realises, shelled. But he can sense a curious tension in it. It's me, of course. What else would you eat? You. My crop. My... You must be quite young if you've never... The rest of the Telf's words do not pierce the sudden froth of shock that whites out Karatet's attention. They're blood. He's drunk. Their blood. He'd resolved not to partake in this odious ritual, and yet he'd gobbled the offering down without thought. But of course, why else did he come here? In the end he'd made the journey because in the back of his loud and righteous mind he was a coward, afraid of death, afraid of dying slow and hungry. "'Oh, no, have I lost you again?' the Telf asks, touching his brow. "'No, no, I'm well, I'm here,' he says feebly, lowering himself into the water up to his eyes. "'I didn't mean to do that. "'And all without proper introduction, or why I'm really here. "'Hunger makes us all clumsy. "'Do you think you can manage more? "'Or should we wait and see what of me you can keep down?' No! The shout fills the room, which from the travelling echo Caratet now realises is quite large. The telf stiffens and retracts their claws, a motion that makes Caratet's feathery gills pin to the side of his head. I didn't come here for a meal. I came here to understand, to understand why you acquiesce to such a one-sided arrangement. And I've come here to... To die, his mind supplies, but his mouth refuses to shape the words. I see, the telf says slowly as if measuring the veracity of his statements. I find it hard to believe you don't know anything of this tradition. Of course I know all about it, he hisses, tone somewhere between exasperated and petulant. But I don't understand why you do it. I want to know from your own tongue, not from the voice of an man or a tablet. The telf clicks its claspers in worry. You don't have much time left. Yes, but I need to know. The telf introduces himself as the monk Anul, and Karatet stumbles through his own introduction, his lineage and current scholarly pursuits, all of which Anil chitters politely at. As they walk from the reception baths out into the warmer halls, Karatet moves closer so he might be able to glean the Telfs appearance from vibration alone. Touch, if he's lucky enough to brush against his host. His behavior, it seems, doesn't go unnoticed. Anil stops, drops a claw onto Karatet's arm to stop him, Before we go further, would you like to touch me? It seems unfair. I can see you clearly, and you've no idea what kind of being you're walking next to. I've some idea, Karatet says shortly. He lifts his hand to his shoulder to guess at Anno's height. I can hear you. The weight of your steps and how you're— He clears his air-roughened throat, reaching for another word besides blood. Pulse echoes in your body. How the wind and sounds strike against you as well. it all gives me a general shape. Impressive, Anil says, pacifying. But touch would give you more clarity, no? Caratet can't argue that. He nods. "'Come here, then.' "'Something shuffs to the ground, "'some garment Anil was wearing, "'too light for him to notice. "'Before he can move forward, "'Anil's hard claws are pulling him forward by his wrists, "'the supple skin pinching under the telf's chitin. "'He puts Caratet's palms on his chest first, "'and the omen can do little but suck in his breath, "'overwhelmed by such intimacy.' His seti read every infinitesimal crack in Annel's exoskeleton, track the great seams between his joints, the fine hairs that fleck his mandibles and palps. He moves around Annel tracking his unique form, a sharply sculpted head crowned with antennae, a frighteningly narrow waist followed by a near-spherical stomach, warm, so warm, more than half his size, and all perched atop three stickly sets of legs. Impressive, he echoes, though this with a little more unease. No, more than impressive. You're quite solidly built. I'm surprised you were able to cart me all the way from the Ullman Caves to your village. Oh, we don't all have this body type, Anno says. His palps clapping laughter. The crop you felt in my stomach is something only monks carry, uh, for almonds specifically. Otherwise, the Telf are quite a lissome people. And they could carry a good ten of you easily, twenty with effort. The crop. What the monks cultivated in their bellies, specifically for the almond to feed on. What a weight it was to carry. What incredible strength needed to bear such a burden. And he'd touched this warm, life giving body so easily like it was nothing. When Caratet makes no move to shake himself from the shame of his thoughts, Arnold tugs him by his hand, hard against soft. It's not a long walk but the dryness and the leaf-mangled wind drains the dampness from Karatet's cloak and then skin. A few brief stretches of Anil carrying him up a wall of woven vines, across thatched hanging bridges, and before they arrive at their destination, the answer to Karatet's guilt. When Anil lifts the heavy drape from the entryway, it is not what he expects. He can sense it as a modestly sized room, no bigger than his own in the caves, and not particularly extravagant, at least to his skin. As he moves around it, he feels low tables with inscrutable objects atop them, some hard and others soft as mud. This is your home? Uh, Just so. It's quite... Caratet waits for Arnold to lend him an adjective, but in the ensuing silence he settles for restrained. Another confused beat of silence. What exactly am I meant to understand here? My work, Arnold says, gesturing as if it were obvious. I get to do whatever I like as a monk. Well, after seeing to my duties, of course— Currently, I'm interested in recording what I see of the green world. Those sculptures are my impressions of plant life I've observed, fascinating how they change and die, the forms they take upon their return. My mentors say I have a knack for exaggerating them into interesting forms. Sculptures. Indeed. And before this it was cooking with lessons from some of our finest gastronomes. Before that, dance, and before that, poetry. Caratet perks up at the last subject, but then flattens his gills in irritation. I thought you were going to tell me why it is you've taken on this sacrificial role. Not your hobbies. I did. As a monk I can do whatever I like, under the tutelage of any I wish. And uh, that's enough. I'd say it's quite a fine life I have. Isn't that what you're concerned with? That the density of pleasure I've known balances out my death. Most Telf work as scavengers and brooders, cooks and builders. Not the most entertaining work, and very tiring. He smooths a hand down his arm shining his shell and then there is my faith to consider obviously but i have a sense that my desire to become a saint is not your concern well of course i understand you believe what you're doing is right that other telf think it's right Ah, uh-huh. i know what i'm doing is right "'Regardless, am I supposed to impress upon you "'the extent of my life's faith "'in the mere hours we have together? "'Maybe a day or two, if you're fortunate.' "'I can't imagine it would take all that long,' "'Karatet mumbles snidely, "'then snaps his jaws shut at the insult. "'Telf only lived for two or three years at most, "'but that didn't mean they only had "'a child's understanding of the world "'or of their faith.' "'though he could only bring himself to think that "'on the surface of his thoughts "'without any deeper acceptance. "'I only mean your life is but a blink compared to mine. "'And the brevity of my life makes it lesser. "'Not at all.' "'Arnold takes a seat on a moss-covered platform, "'carefully adjusting the great swell of his stomach. "'So this has made it all the easier for you?' "'Easier?' To take your nourishment. That's a fine way to say it, Karatet says shrilly. I'm not going to eat you. Perhaps you need to read more of the experience, uh, from the perspective of the Telf, and not just Oman. I've read all your holy doctrine as I've read mine, Karatet says sharply. I can't believe that this is the only way for my people to live, for yours not to. You act as if there is no benefit to me. Any benefit we've made to entice you into this sick tradition is a farce. It is unnatural. The omen have preyed on the Telf for as long as we've had words and further back still. I can't think of anything more natural. I'm not going to feed on you, Karatet grits out. It's not right, no matter what you believe. Because— that regards Annel with his nose, his skin, and finds the Telfs' poise unbreakable. Because I don't want you to die. I don't want to take a life just to keep mine going temporarily. But I am going to die. Quite soon, actually. I'm one of the eldest monks in our order, and by rights I've the luxury of choosing how. And not a choice we Telf often get but what about your your hobbies your art you can't tell me you want it all to stop that you don't desire to continue making things i do enjoy it but my joy in my hobbies is less important than your life caradet spits out a short burst of offended air at the core of their reasoning they held the same values towards the preservation of life, values that were now directly at odds. "'How—how do you know I'm worthy?' he asks with no lack of smugness. "'What if I've hurt others and been cruel? "'What if I destroy things? "'What if that's what I plan to continue doing?' Your worthiness and nature, none of you, is of any consequence to me. The gift here is me being able to continue a life that is equal to mine. But not your life? What about having children? I know you tell love having large families. Ah, family. It's not something I can do alone. "'and I don't have the temperament for a home full of brood-mates "'and walls full of candle-chambers. "'But this,' Arnold gestures between Karatet and himself, "'this I can do alone. "'And continuing a life is quite a different gift than creating a new one. "'One could say it's incomparable.' Karatet paces, lashing his tail.' You know the old men have been doing this since the gods created us, hunting you. We've made the whole process pretty now, easy, even for us, clawed out a holy story that feels good to our fingers. How do you know you've not been tricked into doing this, that lies have not stripped you of your will? Some of my brother monks have withdrawn from being nourishers, some do want something other than this, and they are never compelled to stay. Annal's voice grows quiet, thin as his own skin. But not I. Carrotet growls and itches madly at his drying skin beneath the reedy cloak. And if—what if this is all just a story we've told you, told ourselves to soften the blow of your death, to ease our— Consciousness of, of murder. You act as if I've never considered it. Arnold says with an irritated click. After all, we are your only source of nourishment, of life. I'd say your word can't help but be quite biased indeed. But you've also adapted to us, given us a provision in exchange. We've adapted. Your venom? I've uh, never used it. Karatet wonders at that. As a child, he'd been forced to eat small cave creatures and had never felt his venom sacs engage. He flaps his feathery gills, disturbed at his own ignorance. I've never been in danger, so there has been no need for it. It's not something to protect you, it's something for us. Uh, that is to say, Your prey, Caratet gags in disgust. Don't use that word. I'm not a predator, nor am I prey, not any more. But a lesson on Telf anatomy. Your venom temporarily paralyzes the receiver, and for us it's a particularly amazing sensation, divine even. He'd read of this so-called sensation, the euphoria the venom induced lies, he assumed, to persuade the Telf to give themselves up. Suspicion pins Caratet's gills to the sides of his head. How would you know the sensation? You're still alive. Upon initiating into the Order, we're given a small file of venom. That's how we decide if we want to pursue this path. Annal's voice softens to a trickle. It is unlike anything I've ever known. It melts our minds from our bodies, grants us wingless flight, allows us to peer into the vast sea of memory, the legacies made by Telf and Ullman and all living things. Ha! The forged dreams of the Eton, carved by secondary claws, not dreams. Doors! Thrown open. And if it is only dreams... Wild envenomed fantasies. Annal's body sags, his exoskeleton creaking joint against joint. Even if it's unpleasant, or nothing at all, I'm still helping keep you alive, no? No, 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 Karatet says, resuming his pacing, his itching, trying to peel out of his chapped hide. Like the bees drawn to the flower, even the blooms that eat it... Karatet's skin prickles and numbs. His ears grow muffled by his own pulse. The floor gives way beneath his feet. You've been fooled, Anil. Uh, There is no kind way for me to say it. No, no way at all. A different room vibrates into being around Karatet as he wakes. Larger than Anil's studio, made of denser material as well. He guesses stone instead of bark. But when he shifts in the woven chair of wherever he is, the echo catches and shudders through it differently than any rock he knows. He shifts again, and this time takes note of something restraining his waist and legs. You fainted again. Lano presses a hand to his shoulder, keeping him sitting. Stay. I don't trust your legs anymore. "'Apologies. Why—why am I bound?' "'For your own safety, Uh, but that is of no importance at the moment. "'Tell me, did you come here only to hurl insults at me and my people before dying?' "'No. Well, yes, I suppose I most likely will die here.' He touches the grumbling concavity of his stomach, the hollow dizziness of an appetite unaddressed expanding in his head. But that's not why I came. Then tell me why, To. I wanted to know what you were like, Karatet says, tipping his head up towards where Annel's voice is coming from. Your lives, your beliefs, if you simply didn't realize the injustice of it. And are we as guileless and gullible as you thought? The sting in Annel's words doesn't miss. You can't fault me for wanting to know how we could do this to you. I thought maybe you were different in some way, simpler. We are different, Uh, different in a way that made it easier. And it's not easier, Karatet dips his head. If it were, if we were simpler, crueler, perhaps, would you take nourishment then? No, he says but the firmness in his voice is false. Where are we? Uh, Not your private quarters. The temple's feeding chamber, Anil says. It's empty save for us now, but during the ceremony proper it would be filled with other monks to witness the nourishing. Proper? I've decided you're not in any fit state to decide whether you want to live or not. The lack of nourishment has made you erratic and dispirited. In this situation, we simply cannot rely on your irrational judgments. How dare you call me irrational! I am an omen scholar trained by learned elders who've seen hundreds of your generations pass, and you—you're nothing more than a child playing at holiness. Annals' voice sharpens. Karatet, you will— Eat. You will eat and live, and I will receive the honor I am due. Before Karatet can think to cry out for help, to snap for Annal to stop, his jaws are forcibly parted, and the Telf's forearm is shoved into his mouth. Immediately his mouth overflows with saliva and venom as Annul forces his jaws shut around his arm. The first crunch through the Telfskitin is a revelation of flavors. The smoky fermented shell gives way to a herbaceous meatiness so rich it brings tears to his eyes. Tears of horror, because there is no fighting what his body so painfully demands. Karatet knows how the ritual is meant to go as he has read of it time and time again. He would paint Annel's body with a softening salve before sunrise, which would weaken the Telf's hardy exoskeleton into a soft cartilage-like consistency. Other Telf would escort them as the sun steps above the horizon, both monks and star ready to bear witness. Once upon the altar, Caratet would start by consuming Annel's limbs so that he might experience the euphoric envenoming the longest. Next would come Annel's belly, which would first be minimally punctured by a ritual thorn. His crop will flow down onto the altar which has been carved with a lip to catch every drop, funneling it down to a narrow channel from which he could drink. Then Caratet would eat Annel's abdomen, followed by his antenna, palps, his chest, and finally his head. Digesting Anil would take him a handful of years, perhaps even more. He wouldn't feel the clutches of starvation for a decade at least. He wouldn't feel. He wouldn't. But there is nothing sacred in the temple today. Karatet watches his body from a distance... "'lost in a feeding-frenzy fugue. "'The only grace in this bestial gorging is Annel's voice "'as Karatet tears through the hard parts of his body "'to find the tender treasures within him. "'The telf sounds beatific. "'Singing a hymn of chitters and whistles, "'melodies only a telf could make. "'Annel only stumbles in his song "'when Karatet tears too roughly at his flesh.' "'jerking his voice off kilter. "'The song goes on and on as Karatet eats, "'so steady and lovely "'that he almost forgets that he is ending a life, "'making a feast of Annel's faith. "'When Karatet comes back to himself, "'he is near as full as Annel once was, "'his belly sphering out uncomfortably in front of him. "'He is out of the chair.' The twine bindings now tatters on his legs, sitting where Anul once was on the altar of nourishment. There is a sludgy wetness all around him, and when he runs his hands along the surface of the altar he finds sharp bits of shell, a stray claw. The air is filled with the smell of old peat and loam and honey. He touches his face feels where the watery blood has begun to dry into a thin, flaky paste on his muzzle. He runs a finger around the inside of his mouth, flinching at ragged cuts in his gums. He hadn't salved, Anil, softened him for consumption. Had it hurt more being devoured like this? Had he screamed? Had his faith broken on the final bite? or had he gone with a righteous smile, smug all the way down his throat. Between his teeth the saint sours. Karatet wails on the altar until the other monks arrive, hushing him with throat-caught hums. They wipe at his tears with slender claws. The unintended scratch is a painful solace from the numbing stretch of his heresy. The summer current moves swift and warm through the lightless cave, filling the white cavern with a heavy and humid air, dotting the ceilings with constant droplets of condensation. The tiny splashes of cave rain fill the space with sounds, vibrations that patter at his skin, sharpen the shape of every object and omen in the room. "'You look well, brother,' The muratage tells him as she passes by with freshly hewn stone for writing. Pausing, she adds, I'm pleased, and I hope you are too. You are worth any and every telf, my dear. The most Karatet can make himself answer is with a flick of his gills. His voice sits behind a driftwood dam, building up with a bitter detritus. He feels Murataj depart for her duties, and the space between them fills with a toxic plume of resentment. What were any of them truly worth? Brood mothers lay a clutch of freshly hatched nymphs before him for their daily reading. They are quite young, young enough that they have no language, only bleats to voice their discomfort. They likely won't understand today's reading, but it doesn't matter. Tradition commands, and the omen obey. Karatet draws a new limestone tablet from the shelves and places it on his lap. His stomach bulges against the tablet, forcing it farther from his body. By finger pad, he begins to read, glyph by glyph. Another favorite poem of the omen. By the great wordsmith Loraja. The warm wine of mites fills my nourisher's belly, and in the sweetness of your holy wellspring, here I, a river-lustered heart, lie smooth for your claws' contentment. It is the prettiest of lies he has read in his time as a scholar. The nymphs begin to cry as he trails off into silence already desperate to be back in their mother's pouch. Their helpless bleats and the splashing droplets fill his skull to brimming. All thought, since he has left Annel, has taken on the same foamy quality of meaninglessness. Even now, with his attention directed at the nymphs before him, he cannot find a seed of solicitude, of deference to life he once had. They too would grow and eat their annals happily year after year, life after life. Little predators in the making, just like him. The tablet slips from his lap as he stands, chipping as it clacks loudly onto the ground. A scholar snaps at him from an adjacent study cell, but he cannot make out the words. Come here, little one. Gingerly, as though Caratet were touching the Telfs' soft belly, he lifts a nymph to his face. It whimpers, but this time nothing in him flinches. Do you want to see something truly holy? he asks the little omen, opening his jaws wide, letting the honey of its curiosity lead it further behind the temple of his teeth The honey of its hollow mind pressing against the comforting warmth of his tongue, then throat, to a nourishment never to be had. Bones to marrow, blood to heat, teeth to saints, nymphs to meat.
0: Welcome back. You've been listening to A Saint Between the Teeth by Sloane Leong, as narrated by Stefan Repnicki and directed by Chelsea Dupuy. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it. Sloan Leong is a cartoonist, illustrator, writer, editor, and labor organizer of mixed indigenous ancestries. Through her work, she engages with visceral futurities and fantasies through a radical kaleidoscopic lens. She is the creator of several graphic novels from Under Mountains, Prism Stalker, A Map to the Sun, and Graven Eye. Her fiction has appeared in many publications including Dark Matter Magazine, Apex Magazine, Fireside Magazine, Analog, Realm Media, and more. When she's not making something, she's helping run the Cartoonist Cooperative, an organization working to improve and protect the labor rights of cartoonists around the world. She currently lives in Chinookland, near what is known as Portland, Oregon, with her family and two dogs. Stefan Rutnicki is a Grammy-winning audiobook producer and an award-winning narrator who has won several audio awards as well as more than 25 earphones awards and been named one of audiophile's golden voices. Stefan has been producing Lightspeed Magazine podcasts since 2010, eventually adding Nightmare and Fantasy Magazine and sharing the Hugo Awards for Best Semi-Prosine in 2014 and 2015. Post-production was by yours truly. Our music and sound logos were composed and performed by Jack and Cade. Lightspeed is published by Adamant Press, and this podcast is produced by Skyboat Media. This episode is Copyright 2024 by Adamant Press. Thanks for listening. That's all for now. See you on the Bitstream. I'm Jim Freund, wishing you cheers from all of us at Lightspeed.